I'm not going to start off this podcast singing, John. And the reason I'm not going to start off singing is because every week I realize yeah. that we normally don't even intro the show outside of right. me just yelling at you. So right. I am going to take a professional note and say, welcome to Shaken and Disturbed, everyone. Uh, wow. I'm Darren Karp. That's John Thrasher, That's and me. Uh, and good night. We'll see you next week. And good That's night. All. That's the whole show. That's all we kind of need at this point, I think. You know? you know, I will say this, Darren. I love you. I love a good sing-songy intro. However, Uh-oh. when I'm editing the show, uh-huh. you usually are so loud when you're excited to start the show oh. that I do have to adjust your levels a little at the beginning so oh. it doesn't blow out everyone's ears. Now, that's not to, that's not a diss on you. It's just your creative uh, mm-hmm. musician coming out. And you hate me. I don't want to pull you out of that. I think it's just that's who you are. But um, I think the listeners might enjoy a little bit of a break from that particular moment of the show. Tay, no taken, <laughs> no taken. I will, uh, I, I, you know, when, whenever I talk to Andy, he's always like, you have a modular issue. I and think I like, about <laughs> I think I just get excited. I every think- time, yeah, no, you do get excited. It's a great thing. And every time I edit it, I think about you saying that Andy <laughs> said that to you once. So it's funny you would mention yeah. that. Yeah. So maybe yeah. he has a point. Maybe uh, your boss knows what's up. Yeah, has maybe. a point, yes. But, yeah. you know, we should kick off this episode just before we get into the case <laughs> this week because there's a lot of, um, there's, a, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of details. And, of course, Megan mm-hmm. did her utmost diligence with this. But we just wanted to recap our Patreon live stream. It was our first ever that we had uh, earlier yeah. this week on Monday night. And I got to say, like, it reinvigorated me, John. I agree. There was an energy to that live stream. I wasn't, I kind of was like almost not expecting, but I don't know why. Right. Because we get so used to just, you know, speaking into our microphones once a week and, you know, editing the show and putting it out there for everyone to enjoy. Like it was the first time, at least for Shaken and Disturbed, where we were interacting with our fans who have mostly and thankfully followed us over from Martinis and Murder. So and really normally, exciting. And I will say just, you know, I get nervous sometimes because I'm like, what am I going to say? Like, is anyone going to want to participate? Like, do I care? Aww, and I and I realized, I realized even afterwards, it was like, and I think I texted you this right afterwards. And I was like, it just goes to show, especially within our Facebook group and with this Patreon, you know, the, the this, this community that we're building. It's like, not mm-hmm. only is everyone literally the nicest person, but yeah. they also like, we all just want to laugh with each other. Like, that's totally. it. Like, yeah, that's yeah. what it was. It wasn't even like these hard hitting, like, you know, like <laughs> berated questions. It was just like yeah. so much fun. Like, we were just all making fun of each other. And it was, and it's funny because, you know, someone comes on and they're like, I'm from Canada. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Which obviously was just a joke <laughs> because I love Canada. You're and so then, sorry, actually. Sorry. I'm so sorry. And then afterwards, she sent me a, she sent me a DM of like this montage of, why Canada's way better than the United States. <laughs> and I was like, touche. I was like, I, 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 like, I stand corrected, basically, yeah. with this. Uh, and I'm willing to take the, the, the heat here. But anyway, thank you so much for all that came out. And uh, in the future, yes. we'll do more. If you couldn't make it the first Wait, time, we're certainly going to be doing more in the future. Should we tell everybody like what happened with me, at least? The big moment? The big yeah. V-word moment? Well, I there there was a big moment where a couple people had requested John to say <laughs> vagina, which I have no problem saying. And But I do. John knew it was coming. You know, he knew he was prepared a little bit. Um and I will say that John actually said it and this sparked and then we had a couple comments, you know, like uh someone was writing in the Patreon today like, "Oh my god, I can't believe like I heard it here first when John said vagina (laughs) and then it sparked a merch idea in my mind John that we should have a t-shirt that said you know I listened to Shaken and Disturbed or I heard John say vagina and all I got was this (laughs) stupid (laughs) t-shirt don't we're not making that shirt how dare you (laughs) I'm gonna make three of those shirts for three lucky Patreon (laughs) users yeah yeah exactly whoever can donate the most (laughs) to us um but yeah we and and it, it just goes to show you that like if uh, if enough people want it and enough people will it and enough people are willing to pay money, yeah. John will pretty much say whatever you well, want him listen, to say. And that's a good thing. I feel such a debt of gratitude to our Patreon supporters for keeping us in business, essentially. So I was like, you know what? Let me just, you know, deal with this. You first started by saying to describe it. 
And that's what really threw me because I was like, oh, no, I won't be describing the V word in any way, shape or form. Right. Because Um, it's a purple triangle that you know nothing about. (laughs) Right. And uh, yeah, it was a fun night. And then I did get kind of drunk, Darren. I'm not going to lie. Like I was very kind of like. I no, you know, were, because I, I like texted you afterwards, and you were yeah. like, I'm kind of tipsy. Yeah, I, I was like, like I'm was literally like, tips. I love it. I love that you got a little, I love that you get a little tips. Uh, well, it's great. So thank as, you to all. Yes, thank you everyone who showed up. And speaking of Patreon, today's episode, the subject matter was actually suggested by Patreon supporter Tisha Olicky. I'm hoping I'm saying that right. I it messaged could be her. Ulicky. I don't know. I know. I messaged her on um, Patreon to ask her specifically if I was pronouncing it right, but she hasn't gotten back yet. But Tisha, I am hoping I'm saying that right. And thank you for sending in this uh, really interesting case that we're going to get to today. Yeah. And I want to encourage everyone to submit cases. I mean, obviously, we're not, we can only do as many as we can possibly cover, but, you know, we're always looking for those cases, especially that we've never really heard about before. So please. Please send them in, whether it's on the Facebook group, on the Patreon. Like, we yeah, absolutely everywhere. want to hear from you everywhere. Um, and, you know, yeah. you can join us for all of this, everything that we've sort of been talking about at patreon.com slash shaken and disturbed. Uh, it, for as little as $5 a month. And the link is also in our yeah. show notes. It's on our Instagram. So uh, we appreciate the continued support. But uh, absolutely. I think, I think we should get into the case and we start off every case with a little drink in our hand. What are you drinking? Drink, this week, keep drink. John? Well, Darren, I'm drinking. I'm drinking that bourbon again because I had that White Claw with Crystal Light last week and it was good. But, you know, like I said, my mission is to try to get rid of this bottle of bourbon that's been sitting here for, I think, about a year now. So I'm just – I'm listen, that's what I had on the – patreon live stream last week and i got tips pretty quick so i'm gonna only i only put a little bit into my drink i didn't want to go you know overboard with it today well that sounds fantastic uh that sounds very very good i what about you well, I, I'm taking a little page from uh, one of our listeners who wrote on our Facebook uh, note. I hope it's okay that I'm shouting her out. She wrote on our Facebook page, so I assume that it's kind of public knowledge there, but her name sure. is Hillary, Hillary Rumsey, and we really appreciate you reaching out, Hillary. Um, you, you know, you said that you love the podcast and you enjoy our shake and drinks, and you're a little bit over four months sober from alcohol. Uh, congratulations. Wow. That's, that's a huge accomplishment. You should feel so proud, especially in a pandemic. Let me just bring that up. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine sure. uh, what's going on. And so today, my drink of choice is going to be dedicated to you, and I will be drinking my, my afternoon pick-me-up, Hillary Rumsey, to, to honor you uh in your sobriety i'm going to be drinking a diet coke here just a diet coke so john's going to get tips i'm going to make fun (laughs) of him for being tips uh and and on we go and on we go so let's get into this week's case yes and congratulations once again hillary that's an accomplishment that you should be very proud of and although we do like to drink and imbibe from time it's not going to be every week i'm just shouting her out every once in a while of course you know not every week yeah and yeah, we're we're gonna enjoy it in in whatever way we can. So let's get into uh, this week's show, which is brought to us by Patreon supporter Tisha. I'm really hoping I'm saying your name right, Tisha. Mm. So at around 3:30 a.m. on August 7th, 1985, the British police received a phone call from Jeremy Bamber, who gave his name and address, stating, "Quote: You've got to help me. My father has rang me and said, please come over. Your sister has gone crazy and has got the gun." End quote. Now. Mm. I just realized um, the British police received this phone call. I don't know if Jeremy Bamber is British, but I should probably speak with a British accent if I'm going to be reading oh, quotes, right? I, so, I will say the the sirens in every country and in every like I, yeah. maybe Providence or whatever sound different, you know. Right. And I'm so used to the New York sirens, which are which are the sirens in California and Maryland or whatever. But mm-hmm. but when you go to London or Paris. The sirens are so much less harsh. They're, they're like, like, wee, they're like wee, yeah, wee. right, like a little bit more fun. Um, and so yeah. I, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, the, the British uh, police have any uh, fun sort of <laughs> answering machine in a lot of ways. But yeah, I mean, yeah. just from the jump, this is this is a familial matter, matter, and it's not looking good. Father, sister, brother, yeah. son, not looking good. So should I read this in with my British accent? Is Go for what it. I'm saying? All right. Uh, stating, quote, you've got to help me. My father has rang me and said, please come over. Your sister has gone crazy and has got the gun. Scene. End Good quote. Job. 
Good job. Thank you. I'd like to thank the Spice Girls for teaching me how to speak British. Yes, um, absolutely. With a a British accent. Anyway, then the line went dead. Jeremy noted uh, to the operator that it sounded as though someone had cut off the call. Jeremy told authorities that his sister had a history of mental illness and that there were guns at White House Farm, his family's home in, I'm hoping I'm saying these names right, Tullis Hunt, Darcy Essex. Darcy Essex? I'm not from the UK, so I'm not sure. I know Essex, at least. Yeah, Lord help us, British listeners. Lord anyone help in, us, anyone, yes. I'm not even saying UK <laughs> listeners, because I'm sure there's Americans that know more than us, um, but yeah. please help us. Tulls Hunt, Darcy Essex. Okay. Well, police were dispatched to White House Farm. That's the main place we need to talk about. And Jeremy was asked to meet with authorities there. When uh, the police arrived, there was no sound coming from the home, and they worried they might be faced with a hostage situation, so they decided to wait for daylight to enter the building. Hmm. Um, That's actually kind of crazy, because, I mean, it doesn't say, you know, we don't have research about what time they entered, but, you know, I'm assuming that you know, they waited around for quite a long time, essentially. Well, I would imagine, I also will find it almost a little surprising. And the only reason I find it surprising, and listen, this is just for me uh, putting my Mm -hmm. two cents in here. I obviously don't know what it's like to be a hostage negotiator or anything like that. But I would think that at night might be better because you can kind of catch them off guard, maybe. They can't see you coming. But obviously, these people have much better expertise, so there must be a reason for waiting till morning. So That's yeah. true. Yeah. So obviously, we are not like the SWAT team, so maybe no. we shouldn't uh, assume. Right. Um, because you and I would just like kick the door down, and then things would go very badly for us. And I'd take like. the cat and dog and then run away and not really remember <laughs> why I was there in the first place. You right. Know? Exactly. Right. Well, at around 7.45 a.m., officers entered the home and found that all five inhabitants had been shot to death. Now, that's a lot of death. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, see one body, but five. Jeremy's father, Neville, was found dead in the kitchen. His mother, June, laid on the bedroom floor with her daughter, Jeremy's sister, Sheila. Oh, my God. Sheila's, this is where it gets tragic, Sheila's six-year-old twin sons, Daniel and Nicholas, were still in their beds. Uh, Yeah. Across Sheila's body, pointed toward the gunshot wound in her neck, was the twenty-two automatic rifle that had been used to shoot all five family members and next to her body was a Bible. Hmm. At the scene, a firearms officer inspected the gun cupboard in the ground floor office to check that all firearms were secure. Although neither they nor any police officer inspected the other guns or gun accessories in the cupboard. At 8.10 a.m., the doctor on scene, Dr. Craig, formally certified all five deaths, stating during trial that the deaths could have occurred at any time during the previous night and that the appearance of Sheila's body suggested that her wounds had been self-inflicted. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. And this reminds me of that episode we just uh, released recently about the insects involved with bodies that are decomposing. It sounds like... Um, this doctor is aware of like time of death and that type of thing, which is yeah. obviously very important. And it's inside. I mean, so this would kind of track at to Jeremy who got the call saying, you know, my sister went crazy. Exactly. She's got a gun. And, you know, who knows? This could have been, you know, kill every member and then kill yourself. This this mm-hmm. does happen as tragic as it is. And so an, an autopsy of all five bodies revealed the following. Neville Bamber had been shot eight times. Two wounds to the right side and two to the top of his head. Those are some of the ones included. Now, to me, already saying this, it would have to be a very bloodthirsty type of person to shoot any person eight times, let alone, like, your father. With a rifle, right? With a rifle, yeah. yeah. And and not only that, apparently Neville's jaw was severely fractured. His teeth were damaged, as were his soft tissue in his neck and larynx. He had a broken nose, black eyes, bruising on his cheeks, and lacerations and blunt force trauma all over his head, chest, and arms. So this is brutal, the definition of brutal. You know, this isn't like a... I'm thinking like those suicide packs on those cults, you know, where it's like, I I, I mean, and and as terrible as that is, and I'm not saying that that's good either. It doesn't tend to be as brutal. It's more of just kind of like a one shot and done type Mm -hmm. of thing. 
Well, June Bamber had been shot seven times, one of which was to her forehead, one mm. on the right side of her head. Daniel had suffered five gunshot wounds to the head. Nicholas suffered three gunshot wounds to the head. Now, I, I need I need I remind you here that that Nicholas and Daniel were the Sheila's six-year-old twin yeah. sons. So both right. of these boys are six years <clears throat> old, okay, with gunshot wounds to their heads. I'm just trying to paint the picture of just how awful this attack was. Now, Sheila had two bullet wounds to her throat. The higher wound would have likely killed her almost instantly, probably due to the, you know, the neck, the head, while the lower would have been fatal, but not an injury that would have caused immediate death. You know, it probably would have taken her a while to bleed out, essentially, uh, depending on where it was. Now, according to the medical examiner, a person with this injury may have been able to stand and walk around for a little while. Oh, dear. That's kind of scary in and of itself, isn't it? Yes, which is also kind of odd because, like, while you may be able to stand and walk around for a while, to me, like, what's your mindset of thinking yeah. that you could do that, I guess, after being shot in the throat? Right. You know, right. there was no evidence on Sheila's body that she might have been in a fight or a scuffle. There was no defense wounds. However, from the pathological evidence alone, there was really no way to determine whether she had been murdered herself or committed suicide. Tough which to I, say. Yeah, which I find very um, interesting because I always thought that self-inflicted gunshot wounds in particular, like there's so much ballistics information and data at this point right? that you would think, you know, that type of stuff would be very easily identified. So I'm re- I was really surprised by this research. Yeah, at least like testing gunpowder uh to yeah. some extent on a, on a person's hands. You know, it's worth totally. noting it's worth noting though John that Sheila's hands and feet were perfectly mm. clean. There were no marks, indentations on her hands or fingers, nor was there any blood, gunpowder, gunpowder which was unusual for someone who has recently handled a 22 ammunition. I mean, I think that even if you just put the gun in your hand, you'd have some sort of Totally yeah. Something on there that the act of loading the magazine of an automatic weapon almost always leaves trace evidence, visible traces of lubricant, material yeah. from bullets on your hands, much like DNA kind of does. In yeah, a, in a no, lot of exactly. ways. You know, you, you, you touch it and it, it kind of spreads. Um, yeah. You know, keep in mind this is 1985, so. Science might not have been to test everything that we'd have today. You know, this was 30 years ago, but right. it wasn't It wasn't 1920s. You know what I mean? We yeah. still had evidence there to check. Absolutely. Well, the analysis of Sheila's blood and urine samples showed that she had been using a prescribed antipsychotic called haloperidol. Uh, At trial, the defense called Sheila's Northampton psychiatrist, Dr. Ferguson, to testify about the treatment she'd been receiving since beginning her time as his patient in August of 1983. And it's just funny because I was just last night talking to a friend about the Elisa Lamb case. And, you know, that was another case that was sort of, at least with the documentary we we reviewed, you know, the Hotel Cecil or whatever. I'm forgetting the exact name of that Netflix show now, but... You know, they sort of came to the same sort of conclusion um, that, you know, Elisa was off of her antipsychotic meds and that led to her destruction, sadly. Whether or not that's true, we may never know for certain, but here we are with this case and there's already some conversation around, you know, how that affects somebody. So Sheila had been in very agitated, a very agitated and psychotic state and was admitted for inpatient treatment in August of 1983. She And let's talk about 1983. I mean, by the way, I feel like mental health and even I'm sure the um, medication has come quite a long way since the early 80s, you know, for, to where we are today. Oh, God, yes. I mean, yeah. even thinking in my family, and, and there's been some things in my family, you know, mm-hmm, not necessarily same. direct lineage, but just like people with schizophrenia and stuff like this. Mm. It was... And even today, I'm sure there's obviously a little bit of that, but there's a high stigma and a lot of people, especially for women, you know, and 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 I might be talking here about like the 30s, 40s, but it's like, oh, they're just hysterical. Oh, they're just emotional. Oh, it's just their period. Like, and and I'm not meaning to scoff it off, but that was a very common perception. 
maybe not as much in the 80s as it certainly was in the 40s and the 50s, but depending on where you are, those things absolutely still exist. So, and yeah. it certainly exists for men. It's just the stereotype, I think, with women is very much like, oh, she's being hysterical again, as opposed to having an actual mental illness. Such a good point. Very good job to bring that up. Well, she was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder characterized by disturbance of thinking and perception. She was paranoid, depressed. She struggled with the concept of good and evil. Dr. Ferguson had found her to be very preoccupied with paranoid thoughts of good and evil, including the idea that the devil himself Mm. had taken over her and had given her the power to project evil onto others, including her sons. Remember those, the twin boys that we were talking about. Yeah. Um, She was particularly afraid that she had the ability to make her children want to have sex and be violent with her. Sheila was eventually discharged, though, on September 10th. Now, remember, this was only like it sounds like less than a month um, from when she was admitted to this uh, psychiatric evaluation. And her discharge. This is bringing yeah. up very Andrea Yates vibes to me. Do you remember Andrea Yates? Who drowned I, I, her I know the name. She drowned oh, her yes, 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 children yes. in the bathtub because she thought, yeah. like, God told her to do that. You know, clearly a psychotic break of some sort. And, and, yeah. But this, that, I remember that in my childhood. And we haven't really discussed Andrea Yates, and maybe no, we, we should, should because yeah. that was a. And I don't mean this in a good sense. That was a household name when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Andrea Yates was like, that was a very disturbing murder. Unlike Jean Benet or OJ and the things that were very pop culture moments of the 90s, mm-hmm. Andrea Yates was like so fucking dark. And it yeah, still is sure. so fucking dark. We should cover Andrea Yates, actually. We should, actually. You're right. Yeah. Well, in her discharge paperwork, Dr. Ferguson wrote about her paranoid thoughts, including the idea that he found her capable of murdering her children. Oh, and then, like, la la la. I know. And so, like, what does Dr. Ferguson, and at that time, and with what systems and protocols were in place, like, what does he do with that information? It's like you're a professional psychiatrist, and you're diagnosing and making notes that she's capable of murder uh, in her, her discharge paperwork. Yeah, it, exactly. It's, it's, uh, yeah, and I don't, and maybe there are healthcare workers out there who can maybe help us with this because this seems like a blatant misuse of what you go to psychiatric help for, but it might be that, like, you can't police thoughts and no one thought she was going to act on it. I don't know. It, that just seems like a grave misstep to not have a reason behind that misstep seems odd. No, to me. I agree. You know? I completely agree. It's like there has to be something that this man can do, but maybe there isn't. I don't know. He also noted that she'd spoken of suicidal thoughts, although he did not find her to be a suicide risk. Dr. Ferguson continued to treat Sheila and eventually diagnosed her with schizophrenia and was prescribed the antipsychotic steelazine, which lessened her symptoms and rendered her disturbed thoughts less acute. On March 3rd, 1985, Sheila was readmitted to the Northampton Psychiatric Hospital, agitated and more accurately disturbed and anxious. Again, she was preoccupied with this good versus evil thoughts, but the time, but this time rather, the concern was more related to her excessive religious ideas. And now it's like, you know, you don't want to sort of put some even more ammunition, for lack of a better word, into these already kind of like, you know, hard to kind of cope with thoughts, good versus evil. Now you have religious ideas. It's just, it's starting to add up to be not a great thing. You know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's tough. I mean, yeah. I, I do think there is some sort of religious thing with the good and the evil. Um, obviously this mm-hmm. person has mental illness, but like a lot of that, even I think people who don't have mental illness really struggle with certainly in the gay community, That's a true. lot of people yeah. back in the day who were, you know, devout Catholics or Christians or whatever the hell they mm-hmm. were, were like, I'm gay and I'm going to go to hell and I don't know what to do with that. And, and, and that's a completely different level, right. Of struggling with good and evil. And, but it's, yeah. there's a lot of that caked in there, a lot of indoctrination if, in there. 
You know Absolutely. I mean? It kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you happen to have seen Lil Nas X's new music video for oh, Montero, yeah. Call Me By Your Name. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And eh. it's getting some backlash because he's an openly gay, black, young male rapper and singer. And in his music video, he basically slides down a pole to hell and gives the a devil a lap dance. Yeah, yep. stripper pole. Yep. And it's there's been so much backlash about it. And one of my favorite things that he said uh, in the wake of this backlash was, I'm paraphrasing here, he tweeted this, but he was like, you know, you guys spent your whole life telling me to go to hell and now I'm finally there and you still have a problem with me. And it was just so funny. I'm like, wow, that's really interesting symbolism. Well, and I, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just kind of funny. And listen, I think Lil Nas X was doing exactly what I would have done too. And it's sort of like <laughs> playing on an entire stereotype. It's like you want everything from me, but when it comes right. down to it, like you all still think I'm going to go to hell. Uh, mm-hmm. Those religious people. I just like it funny that like the number one song for a year was fucking <laughs> wet ass pussy. And now we're getting <laughs> mad at Lil Nas X for like sliding down a stripper pole into hell it's like you right. know people's level of what they'll accept is so hypocritical and so beyond exactly also, if you're taking Lil Nas X's video as like to heart it, it, right know. it's just like it's like when people get so mad at Bravo I'm like it's a reality show like yeah. it's weird to it's it's like he's a rapper he's making art he's making art exactly he's making that's exactly art. what I was about to say yeah People anyway. will never get over it, Darren. I think that's just the real reality of, you can't please of our them society. All, right? Yeah, you yeah, can't right. please them all. Well, she was yeah. treated and discharged on March 29th, after which time she continued to receive monthly injections of haloperidol. When presented with the idea Sheila had killed her family and herself, Dr. Ferguson said that it didn't fit his concept of the patient. Although she was, get ready, disturbed. Mm. See, okay. See what you uh, did there? Yeah. Although she was disturbed, maybe even a little shaken. Uh, he didn't yeah, feel, maybe. he didn't feel she was someone who would actually be violent towards her children or parents. And that's really what I was kind of saying with the discharge paperwork. Like there yeah. might be a threshold of she has suicidal thoughts, but is not yeah. going to complete the act. And maybe that's this different level that we couldn't keep her in here for because she's not going to act this out to me totally that seems like a very slippery slope a very fine line but i'm not in the medical profession here so yeah now it appeared to authorities that sheila had murdered her parents and children before turning the gun on herself however even early on in the investigation there was a minority of officers who didn't believe sheila was even responsible for this entire thing so It's really hard to tell what's going on here. They had no evidence that Sheila had been a violent person, nor had she ever been known to even fire or even hold a gun. And this seems for Mm. someone who has never even, you know, a lot of people, they kill animals, they play with fire, you know, and I mean that in in a metaphorical sense. You know, there's usually these tall tale signs of, you know, they're introverted, they act out in certain ways. She's never even fucking held a gun, or at least as mm-hmm. far as we know. So this seems like a very grave thing to do for, for this behavior. Now, when police questioned Sheila's ex-husband, Colin Caffle, he stated that although she'd had a few violent outbursts burst during their time together, these, out, these outbursts consisted of throwing pots and pans and occasionally striking Colin. Now, obviously, throwing anything, violence of any kind, not good. But I also think on the, on the other hand of that, how many relationships could you and I probably name of people that have probably thrown something at one time or, and I'm not maybe striking, but like you get frustrated and you, you throw the pencil across or whatever it is, probably a lot more than people who murder people. So, I mean, how many of my Funkos have landed on the other side of the room, you know, like, right. Whether by a haunted house, uh, (laughs) sighting or not, it's hard to say. Um, but the point is, is that, I kind of understand, yes, this is bad behavior, throwing pots, pans, occasionally striking Colin, but I also feel like his Mm -hmm. point of view might be like, she's erratic, and people can be erratic, and people can be emotional, and they throw shit. So I sort of understand that. Now, to his knowledge, she had never harmed their sons or behaved violently, really, toward anyone else outside of him, so he probably Mm -hmm. just chalked it up to relationship issues. On September 7th, Julie Mugford, Jeremy Bamber's girlfriend, contacted the police. Now, she'd already given them a statement immediately after the murders, but she told them she'd omitted some important details from the first one. Which is interesting. She, Julie, tells authorities that it became obvious to her upon meeting Jeremy that he disliked his family. 
resented his parents, claiming they tried to ruin it, to rot, excuse me, tried to run his life, and he didn't get along with his sister Sheila. Okay, so okay. that's another level, another layer to unpack. Absolutely, and that's an important layer. And between July and October of 1984, he complained about his parents and wished out loud that, quote-unquote, he could get rid of them all. That's oh, God. A, that's a pretty big statement. That's yeah. A, that's a pretty big statement to say that yeah. you want to, you know, like, that's, that, that, and, you know, we've sort of talked about before, of, there's a difference between saying, like, I'm going to kill you, John. I was just going to say that, yeah. And saying, you know, like, oh, John, I could kill you. Like, are you kidding yeah. me with the Funko Pop? Like, and this, if I said, John, I'm going to get rid of you, like, there's... Yeah. Well, it's there's like, something wrong with that. You know, it's it's a yeah. it's a nuance that's important is my point. Absolutely. And obviously in the heat of the moment when you're aggravated and upset and you're saying that versus, you know, the context you were just referencing. I mean, even when I because I, I thought a lot about this in that example you just said, and it's like even in my heated most most emotional moments I've ever been in my brain never goes there. Like it never goes to, I want to murder you. And that means, you know, that's a good thing, but I feel like for murderers and serial killers and those types of people, that's what makes the biggest difference. Like their brain, for whatever reason, the chemistry of it kind of clicks up into that boundary that like most people don't get to, at least that's how I kind of like visualize it in my head. Absolutely. No, I I couldn't agree more. And, Julie explained to officers that this included, so basically Mm. when he said, you know, he could get rid of them all, Julie explained to officers that this included his sister and her sons because, quote unquote, if he was going to get rid of them, it would have to be all of them. Oh, God. I'm curious as to, like, what Julie was thinking in the time. Like, like what, like, like that was his girlfriend. Like, I certainly would be on my back foot if someone was like, yeah, I got to kill the six-year-olds too because, you know, I'm like, hmm. But it gives, to me, I think back too, it's like, in the 80s, what options did you have? I feel like nowadays, you know the authorities, how to call them. We all have cell phones. I mean, even cell phone technology it w- kind of changes this scenario. Um, you know, and it's like there just weren't the same kind of resources that we have at our fingertips with computers, the internet, and cell phones. Yeah, And yeah. And I don't know. I just feel like overall education and awareness of that type of stuff just was not... It's just I just want to make that context clear here because well, right. and, 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 we're so used to it, but maybe and, they weren't. And I could also see her thinking like that can't be true, and I don't right, want to exactly. ruin this guy's life if a or comment t- or, that he's made as yeah. as as crazy as that probably sounds to us, right? As crazy as we're like, right. what? Like you're willing to kill these six year old? Like who knows in what tone was said? I'm not condoning it. I'm 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 not I'm not allowing it to happen you know what yes, I mean? yes but, yes but it's 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 there's nuances to it now i'm sorry one last thing though just because you made a great point to your point that she who knows maybe she also was too afraid maybe she just right? didn't know what to even say i mean imagine someone you love deeply saying something like that like maybe we don't go to the authorities right away because we are ourselves Sorry to say it, shaken and disturbed, but, you know, shook in a sense that somebody that we love would say something like that. That's in some ways traumatizing in and of itself. Good point. Take a drink. Yeah. All right, I will. Jeremy had explained to her that, quote, father was getting old. His mother was mad. Oh, my God. Sheila was mad as well. And in respect of the way the twins had been brought up, they were emotionally disturbed and unbalanced. Oh, dear. So there's lots of layers. That's a quote. Yeah, lots of layers here. Yeah. Well, Jeremy had also told Julie he'd seen copies of his parents' will. Aha. So now we're getting into kind of like maybe the motivation around some of this stuff. Okay. So Julie told the police that Jeremy had begun to openly plot about killing his family more and more frequently between October and December of 1984. He'd talk about being at the house for supper and drugging the family before driving back home in his car, returning to the farmhouse on foot and burning the house down. God, this is very sinister. Like these aren't just like, I want the life insurance money. This is like, 
I'm burning the property to the ground type of shit. Yeah. After a while, though, Jeremy realized that arson wasn't the way to go since it would destroy the property along with everything of value inside. Okay, so maybe it is a little bit more about the money. Um, yeah. yeah. Then I, I, you know, maybe I was getting ahead of myself. But next, Jeremy began to talk of shooting the family, telling Julie he'd learned that the catch on the kitchen window didn't work and he could sneak in that way. Um, I just so like, what's Julie's reaction? Like, I, I just want to know, right. what is she saying? Is she like, that's clever? Or is she like, huh? Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. Yeah. Well, he'd, al- he'd also spoken about Sheila being a good scapegoat because of her prior admissions to the psychiatric facility that we just highlighted, saying he could make it seem as though Sheila had committed the crimes before killing herself. Julie had spent the weekend prior to the murders with Jeremy, during which time he dyed his hair black. So that's another thing that people do when they're trying not to be found is they completely change their looks. They think that, you know, and in the 80s, maybe it worked a little better than it would now. But um, Darren, you were talking the other day about how you wanted to dye your hair pink. Is there any update on that? This was on the Patreon live stream. I mean, I would love to do it. I just don't think that I could. Like, I couldn't. I don't yeah. know. I just I don't think that I could pull it off. But I, I, like someone on the Patreon was like, wear a wig. And I was like, that's a fucking brilliant idea. Why oh, am I so dumb idea. to not think about wearing a wig? Like, I'm just like an <laughs> idiot. So thank you for that. Because I that didn't even fucking occur to me like an idiot. Like, I'm so dumb. Anyway. You're not. Hey, hey, don't talk about yourself like that. On Sorry, show. I, I meant to just talk about you like that. You're right. Yeah, you're just right, to just right. just yeah. baffle me and punch me in the face. Yeah. <laughs> so just before 10 p.m. on Tuesday, August 6, 1985, Jeremy called Julie, telling her he was pissed off and had been thinking about the plan all day, and that it was going to be tonight. Quote tonight or never. So, and again, I just think, what is Julie to do? But sometime between 3 and 3.30 a.m. on Wednesday, August 7th, Julie had received another call from Jeremy saying, quote, everything is going well. Something is wrong at the farm. I haven't had any sleep all night. Bye, honey. I love you lots. End quote. Julie hadn't taken him seriously and kind of went back to sleep because, right, at this point, it has just been all talk. You know, he's sort of you know, been setting things up, but maybe she didn't think he was going to actually do it. So just another bit yeah. of information. For although, her. although the, the phrase, everything is going well to juxtapose the next sentence with <laughs> something is wrong at the farm. Right. To me, automatically, just from like a syntax point of view, <laughs> says yeah. that he's trying to set up a scapegoat here and an alibi here. Mm, and, you know, that's a good point. Here's, yeah. you know, we, we're receiving another call at 3 a.m. Like it just, he's setting up the scene to me. Totally. Well, later during the morning of August 7th, Jeremy phoned Julia again, telling her that Sheila had gone mad. There we go. When Yeah, exactly. So when Sheila had been brought in for questioning later that day, Jeremy waited until they were out of earshot of the police before telling her, quote, I should have been an actor, end quote. Uh, okay. Okay. Well, later on in that evening of August 7th, when the two were alone, Julie asked Jeremy if he had done it. He responded that he hadn't, but had arranged for a friend, Matthew McDonald, to commit the murder. So now we've got another guy in here. So Jeremy recounted what he told uh, Matthew as far as how to get into and out of the house undetected and said that he'd given Matthew instruction to call him from the farm uh, from the family's telephone, which had memory redial. Okay, listen, it's the 80s. So that if the police checked the phone, Jeremy would have an alibi. So there's even things, you know, like I said, the technology is sort of playing a little bit of a part here, at least with this potential alibi. That's really, like, well thought out in in, uh, in a creepy way. Well, Jeremy went on to describe the murders to Julie. He said Matthew had told him it had been a struggle with Neville, Jeremy's father, which had made Matthew angry and caused him to shoot the man seven times. Sheila had been told to lie down and shoot herself last, after which time Matthew had placed a Bible on her chest to make it look as though she'd gone into some religious mania. I mean, not for nothing, but that's when you're just, when you're looking at a crime scene, Mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 and in a weird way, like stereotypes, like, you know, you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but in a crime scene, that's kind of all you can do. And obviously for sure, it makes sense to go through the layers and, and, and trust and verify, but the Bible mm-hmm. is almost this little touch that I think would absolutely throw me on a crime scene. Oh, for sure. You me know, the, the children had been shot in their sleep, so they had not felt any pain, which 
to some extent, I'm just so grateful for that in like a yeah, weird, in a weird, like sick way. Mm-hmm. I just, it's like, at least there's that. Jeremy told Julie that he paid Matthew 2000 pounds in exchange for the murders. Again, not that's that, it. Not that much money. <sighs> Even in the eighties, it wasn't that much money. Uh, right. Julie explained that she did. She initially didn't want to believe her boyfriend had done these brutal killings, but she'd gotten scared when Jeremy told her that if anything ever happened to him, she would also be implicated in the murders. So, Oh, wonderful. What a great guy. Yeah, no, I mean, what a sweetheart. After Julie gave her account, the police arrested both Jeremy and Matthew McDonald. However, upon investigation, they learned that Matthew couldn't have been at the farm that night and was later called by the prosecution to provide evidence that he had nothing to do with the shootings. The evidence was apparently never disputed. So Jeremy was arrested on September 8th, 1985 and was interviewed for the next three days during which time he maintained his innocence and denied making any confessions to Julie Mugford or talking at all about any plans to kill his family. He claimed Julie was making the entire thing up because he'd actually broken up with her. That's right. So remember, everything we were saying was technically from Julie's, you know, talking with investigators. Her everything account. Everything we were just sharing. Yeah, it was exactly. her account. So. You know, on the other side of that is him saying that she, they he had broken up with her and uh, she was pissed off. So on September 29th, 1985, Jeremy was charged with the murders of his family. His trial, which began on October 3rd, 1986, I was 10 months old, lasted 18 days. The prosecution claimed that after having dinner with his family, Jeremy had left White House Farm around 10 p.m. on August 6th to go to his home in Goldhanger. In the early hours of August 7th, Jeremy had returned to the farm and entered through the downstairs bathroom window with a rifle and silencer before going upstairs. He'd shot his mother, June, first while she was laying in bed, but she'd managed to get up and walk a few steps before dying near the bedroom door. Remember, we had talked earlier about with the wound. that. Yeah. yeah, that kind of wound you can actually walk around, which is terrifying to think of. Jeremy had also shot his father in the bedroom, but Neville, who is his father, had managed to get downstairs to the kitchen before being caught. A violent struggle ensued. Neville was eventually shot multiple times in the head, as we mentioned. Um, and then eventually, the, of course, the six-year-olds were six-year-olds were also murdered. In their Sheila, beds, who though, had, at least. I mean, and I know that sounds so even weird to say, but it's just like, if anything... If anything, that it's just how brutal and tragic yeah. these fucking twins are. At least they weren't, you know, I, I don't know. Scared and yeah. running around, yeah, that yeah. type of thing. Yeah. Well, know. Sheila, who had been uh, semi-sedated by her medication, was also shot in the bedroom. And then after killing her, Jeremy had rearranged her body to make it look as though she'd killed everyone before turning the gun on herself. Before he left the farm, Jeremy called himself from the home phone, leaving the phone off the hook and providing himself the alibi he later uh, he used later with police. He left the house via the kitchen window and went home where he called Julie around 3 a.m., then the police at 3.26 a.m. The prosecution knew that Sheila would be the defense's primary scapegoat and relied on the following evidence to prove it couldn't have been her. So first... Although, yes, she did suffer from mental illness, Sheila had successfully taken medication to combat her symptoms, and there was no evidence that her mental state had deteriorated in the time before the murders. She had not expressed any recent suicidal thoughts, and her doctor even testified to it being unlikely that she would have harmed her family. Okay. So there's that. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about her psychosis, but the doctors testifying she wasn't in that state of mind. Right. Um, secondly, nobody in Sheila's life, aside from Jeremy, had ever even seen Sheila use a gun. Which is a pretty big thing. Not that it's yeah. impossible. It's just it's just beyond a reasonable doubt. You know what I mean? You're the, like, For sure. The fact that you'd never even seen it seems very odd. Yeah, and there was no evidence that she would have even known how to use one. And remember, there were... I mean, how many, 20 different shots fired in that house that day? So you almost kind of have to know what you're doing a little bit there, I would assume. I, I think would, that was the point. I would think in this next piece of evidence you're going to present, I, I, I think yeah. is actually a good one that we've sort of talked about before. That's right. So the third is that Sheila was a slight 5'7", 
five feet, seven inches tall, and would have been unable to physically overpower her uh, father, who was six foot four, and the struggle that very clearly took place before Neville's death. And, and thought, Darren, you've talked about this a lot, and I think it's such a great point. Yeah, and I'm actually a slight five seven. And <laughs> That's my, right, I was my, thinking you might be My there. dad is six three. So oh. I know, like, I, I can physically feel the difference between... Mm-hmm. My, now, it would have to be that my father was, like, 95 years old, right? I mean, then, okay, like, at 6'3", maybe at 95, sure. yeah, he yeah, doesn't yeah. have the same thing. But and five seven, you know, decently tall for a woman. And obviously, you're not, you're not a tiny little thing. But, like, that would be fairly difficult to do, is all I'm saying. There are definitely physical constraints and restraints that, that would... It would mm-hmm. be almost impossible to happen. Yeah, and until you mentioned it, you know, years ago, I had never really thought about that. You know, just how important that kind of those kind of details are when it comes to, you know, and not, and not for nothing. That could have also been cause you're a boy. Like boys don't think totally, about it in the yeah. same way because there's nothing that like boys can't do in that way where, and I'm not saying there's nothing that girls can't do, but I think girls could look at someone and be like, there's no way I can overpower this person. Like I, there's right. physical constraints to what I can fucking do. You know, I'm a big boy. That's what I think you were trying to say. Yeah. You're a big boy. Um, yeah. Big, I'm boy. a big boy. Yeah. Big boy. <laughs> big boy. Yeah. yeah, but no, it's so true. I think you're right, though. I mean, just in terms of nature, I mean, usually right. male, you know, the male species is usually genetically just thicker and more muscular in whatever way. Exactly. So it is something that I think, you know, I hadn't really thought of, like, in the same way I feel like you would. But anyway, finally, Sheila's hands and feet were clean. You know, we mentioned this, showed no injury or damage and were free of the blood, gunshot residue, and trace evidence that you'd be expected on someone who had recently loaded and fired a gun. And I think when you put all four of these major details together, most notably, I think even, you know, what we were just talking about with the physical presence... It's not looking like Sheila had much to do with this at all, if, you know, if anything. Well, and let me just say, if we remember when Jeremy was recounting what supposedly his friend Matthew said about the killings, he Mm -hmm. said to Julie that Sheila had killed herself at the end. That he right. made, and, and she would have had gun residue on there. There's no way right, that course. Matthew would have cleaned her hands. So even that was clearly a lie. Now, after right. after deliberating for more than nine hours, the jury found Jeremy guilty of murder by a majority of 10 to 2, the minimum ratio required for murder conviction in Britain. Uh, so it doesn't have to be a unanimous oh, wow. decision in Britain. Jeremy was sentenced to five consecutive life terms with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years. And during sentencing, the judge told Darren... The judge told Jeremy, excuse me, your conduct is planning and carrying out the killing of five members of your family was evil beyond belief. Yeah, that's putting it lightly. Yeah, I I would say so. And I mean, and two (laughs) six-year-olds, by the way. On December 15th, 1994, Jeremy was notified by the Home Secretary that his sentence had been changed to a whole life tariff, meaning that he could no longer be released from prison other than on compassionate grounds, which is usually reserved for prisoners who are terminally ill ill or seriously Mm -hmm. incapacitated in some way. You know, a lot of times if they're on their kind of their last deathbed, uh, you know, they usually are not a menace to society. A 98-year-old person usually isn't a menace to society in a lot of ways and so there yeah. is compassionate release in 2012 jeremy partnered with two other british prisoners douglas vinter and peter moore to argue before the court that whole life imprisonment should be considered degrading and inhumane oh. treatment which is interesting and you know what i might agree with him in in some ways you know mm-hmm. I, I might to some extent i do think that there might not be a point of having someone in prison for Five life sentences, you know, like maybe there's a chance to check it in after 50 years. Of course, someone like Jeremy, I believe, absolutely deserves that and should be behind (laughs) bars the rest of his life. Um, Well, I think of it from the perspective of like, yes, I would agree with that, but I don't want to hear somebody who murdered five people and two fucking six-year-olds tell me that that. Yeah, right. Like, I don't want to hear that from him. Yeah, he's not going to get any compassion from my side of the line here. And in July of 2013, the court ruled in their favor, determining that for a life sentence to remain compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, there had to be a possibility of release and possibility of review. And Well, that's interesting. I do agree with that. I do think that there should be review. You know, I don't think that... um, yeah. As evil and horror. I mean, this is this is up there with the shitty things that we've sort of covered. Um, oh, yeah. But I do believe, and, and possibility of review doesn't mean he gets out. Possibility of review just means let's take the circumstances now as they are. Has he learned? Has he changed? Is there something in him that, you know, he's given his life to whatever? There, 
And there's mm-hmm. instances under which that could occur. And so um, I and do. And the likelihood that he would ever be released is probably very low given very low. His, his, you know, convictions. Yeah. Very low. But it, it offers yeah. for other people, maybe without such yeah. heinous crimes, to at least get released. So uh, thank you so much for writing in about this case this week. It was brutal, yeah. uh, it was horrible. But, uh, you know, it's it seems like one. justice has been served, at least in regards to this and uh you know keep the keep the recommendations coming because we love to hear from you guys absolutely and let us know what you guys thought about it tag us at jay thrasher and carpe darren join us on our facebook group join us on patreon wherever you want to join us and let us know what you thought about this and we might um you know give you a shout out in a future um episode speaking of shout outs darren let's get right into those let's do it So Jade on Instagram commented about the Patreon live stream this week saying, quote, seriously, best night ever, LOL. And all the patrons were awesome, too. Such an awesome group. Thank you, John and Darren, again. End quote. That's a good point. Like it was I was thinking the entire time I didn't really get to say this, but I was like, have they ever like have have any listeners or fans of our shows over the years like met up or learn or become friends or even better like gotten married oh my from God. our show i want to hear from i want to hear we from need to that. know and, yeah. in fact victoria on our patreon reminded me that i did the cameo proposing to her husband <laughs> yes. for her which i was like so can that. i do that like what's going <laughs> on um and by the way I'll, what an honor how would how oh, did you feel when you were doing that cameo? i felt uh, at first i felt like like I, I want to take this seriously. Like I don't want to be jokey because she's asking yeah, me to do something right. serious, and so it's like I just wanted to make sure I lived up to all the expectations of doing something like that. That seems like such an important thing that I, I honestly was nervous because I wanted to make sure that I fulfilled uh, everything that Victoria yeah, wanted. Right. Uh, what I was gonna say was, uh, for those who weren't involved, you guys will know this. Uh, in our Patreon <laughs> live stream, we actually met someone that had the most Funko Pops. Oh my God! Ever. Uh, I want to say that she must have had a thousand. There must have been more. Yeah, it was definitely at least, at the very least, a thousand. She was like, I'm in my basement. I think that's what she said. Yeah. And it was wall to wall. Floor to ceiling. Floor to ceiling. Floor to ceiling. Nothing but Funkos. And I'm like, John was I want to visit your house. Yeah, I was in heaven. I was like, it was John's porn. Uh, Listen, if you're going to kill me and bury me in a basement, like, let it be that one. That's kind of what I wanted to say. Okay, good. Good to know. Good to know. I've been taking notes on where to kill you appropriately. Uh, Oh, good. I I will. I will do this for you now. Aaron on Twitter wrote to us saying, yes, Carpe Darren Neche Thrasher, finally drinking White Claws, my fave. John, I will (laughs) gladly take the rest off your hands from your cooler winnings. Oh, that's right. Hashtag shaken and disturbed. John, I mean, give the people what they want, dude. Listen, I have a whole bunch. I, I mentioned this recently. She's talking about I won a raffle uh, with a cooler full of booze, and I like don't know what to do with it other than drink it every week on the show, but it's going to take me forever to get through everything. But, um, Aaron, if you're ever in Maryland, swing by and you can have a White Claw with me. How about that? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. What a crazy episode. I was shaken and disturbed. I know that. I know. I certainly am. Thank you, Megan, again, for this research. She's going to be coming on in the next few weeks. Of course, you'll get get to hear from her. But, and guys, for all of you out there, please don't forget to rate, review, subscribe to Shaken and Disturbed wherever you listen to podcasts. Any review. Uh, five star rating. Be- want you to be honest, but that all that all helps us gravely, and uh, we're independent, as we say. So anything yeah. helps. We really appreciate. It. And again, if you want to get a join our Patreon, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/ShakenAndDisturbed. It's also in our show notes. There you go. All right, Darren. What a fun week for listeners of our show. I can't wait to get into it all again in April. That's right. Happy, happy April, everyone. Happy April. And happy Easter for those who celebrate that. I think this episode comes out on Easter Sunday. So yes. And for all the people in my field, a happy Pesach as well That's from right. last week. So happy holidays all around to you all. There we'll we see, go. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.